Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. Every week we come together with the intention of edifying you and inviting you into conversations about ministry and about missions and about leadership and, and what it means to be invested in the church. We talk about discipleship. We we talk about all kinds of stuff. And one of the topics that we bring up quite often is missions and uh, in, in particular church planting and the foreign mission field. And so, uh, you know, if you've been in church for any length of time, there are certain names, famous names of missionaries that, that you're familiar with. Um, names like Hudson Taylor or William Carey or Adoniram Judson or uh, Elizabeth Elliot. These are names that a lot of us uh, hear time and time again, and we hear their stories. But one of the things that we realized is that there are countless numbers of, of nameless people, uh, faceless people, who have given their whole lives to the work of foreign missions, and we rarely talk about them. They, they get relegated to maybe a list somewhere, or if there's a record of them, uh, you know, maybe it's a tombstone. But uh, for, for many, many missionaries over the last 2,000 years, they're, they're primarily forgotten people, uh, forgotten to us, uh, but quite important to uh, our God in heaven. And so we thought it would be really good for us to begin doing a series of episodes, um, you know, over the next couple years on unknown missionaries, people that we're not so familiar with. And, and this week, we're going to talk about a man named George Grenfell. And to have that conversation, we've invited Pastor James Fife of Midtown Baptist Temple, a former missionary to Southeast Asia, and he is also the missions uh, professor here, a professor of missiology at Living Faith Bible Institute. And so he's also a good friend of mine, and so I'm, I'm glad to have him here on the show again. Welcome, James, to good another morning. show. Thank good, you. Good to have you here, man. Always good to be here. Um, we were talking a little bit about this episode or these episodes, um, uh, you know, before the show started, and I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, yeah. I, th I think it's powerful, and I think it'll be really good for the audience. And so, yeah, me um, too. Th thank you. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. I love this topic. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot to say, and there's so mm -hmm. many people we could be talking about that uh, we're unfamiliar with. Yes. Whose testimonies would impact us. Oh yeah, and so many that that were never even captured mm -hmm. as well either. There's so many uh, missionaries throughout history that we will only hear their testimony once we meet them right. in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about George Grenfell because yeah. I think there is a lot of background to cover in order to get a picture of who he was. Um, tell us about the time frame and and where he grew up. Sure. So George Grenfell was born 1849, died 1906, so we're 150, 170 years. Uh, back. He was born in England. Um, you know, very simple, very kind of average guy mm -hmm. in terms of his upbringing, in terms of even, you know, Christian life, right? So he came up uh, in, a, in a Christian home. Uh, he was educated at King Edward's school. So, uh, you know, he got an education, an average school, um, grew up in the Midlands near Birmingham. At age 15, he entered into an apprenticeship to become a practical mechanic. Mm -hmm. uh, so they started a little younger uh, back then. We're not sending our 15 year olds into apprenticeships to enter the workforce, but that, that was it. So, you know, if, if we were to compare him to kind of modern era, he'd be like you or me, like yeah. you went to at least some at high school and, right. and just started working. Average middle-class family. Yep. And th now this is 
This is kind of in the middle of the Great Awakening, though. I mean, yes. so it is a time frame where missions is a conversation. Evangelism is really at its height in the mm -hmm. West, even. Um, and so he's coming up in the middle of that. It was it was probably pretty common for for guys to start out in some sort of profession mm -hmm. or vocation that was secular, but for them to catch the bug pretty early on, which is that that's what it sounds like happened to him. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's exactly what happened um, with him. You know, so it seems from everything you read about him, which isn't a whole lot, um, but there was nothing from his early age that that would say that he was intentional about going into mechanic school or, or mm -hmm. intentional towards the mission in, in that selection of, of a profession. It just, you know, kind of worked out that that's where he fit. Take a pause right there for a second. In terms of preparing people for the mission. So, you know, we have a responsibility as pastors mm -hmm. to train our people for the mission. Uh, you work with college, young adults. I work with adults right now, but we also have uh, in our church, Kid Town, and everyone church has a Sunday school ministry. Mm -hmm. And we should be intentional though, early on, in instilling what is the mission, why is the mission important to God, and what is my role in it? And I mm -hmm. think that would even include early on conversations about what do you do when you get into college? You're, you have college students, and I think a big part of your role is to say, well, yeah, okay, so that's a cool degree, but how does it help the mission? Yeah, right. What's the value of that? I know maybe that's what you're most passionate about, but what if you did this instead? Mm -hmm. And you were more free or more equipped, better equipped for the mission. Yeah. And I think uh, uh, we live in a world of creature comforts. And because of that, I think young people do get it in their mind that they have to do something they're passionate about because it's available, mm -hmm. because it's available to them. It's an option on the table. And so we're taught from, you know, with the Myers-Briggs tests in high school and mm -hmm. whatever it is, and people are telling you, well, this is what you'd be good at. And so then they pursue what something that they know that would feel good to mm -hmm. do. Um, let alone once you get into that field, it doesn't usually go the way you think it's going to go. Right. It's never quite what you expect. Yeah. But nonetheless, they pursue things that aren't always incredibly practical to the, to the mission. People like to get jobs that pay well. Mm -hmm. um, and so they sit at a cubicle all day. You know, they, right. They're hidden away from people. They're working on a computer and they have no exposure to souls. Uh, or you have someone that, that pursues a degree that's impractical mm -hmm. and then they have no way of supporting themselves financially for a long period of time. And, and then, um, you know, there's just always these problems that people have to work through Yeah, and it's worth talking about. Absolutely. So, yeah. so, and this really falls actually a little earlier than, than when you catch them in college. Right. If you're a junior high, high school student ministry leader, worker, this is a conversation you should be having. If you're not envisioning your students to think to college and pass college to the mission for the rest mm -hmm. of your life, then I think you're messing up. That we got to start catching them early yeah. and envisioning people that way. For I, sure. I mean, personally, I know that God clearly told me uh, that I should become a nurse mm -hmm. and that that would be the, the most uh, useful vehicle for missions. Now, in my mind, missions came first. And I don't think that's true of everybody. Um, we'll jump back to Grenville here in a second. It, it, it actually is true for him as well. Mm -hmm. um, but then there were components, I think, that got lost uh, in his upbringing, though missions was at his heart. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it is an important thing that we need to continue to think about. And, and it impacts the decisions that students make in terms of leaving to go away to college too. Right. Right. So you ship, you ship your kid to a college town to get the degree that they really want. You know, is there a strong Bible-believing, discipleship-oriented church in mm -hmm. that in that college town? 
I mean, those are hard, those are hard things to work through. There's no right or wrong answers and no pastor mm-hmm. can tell you what to do. Uh, but but we want to always encourage young people to to be somewhere they can get invested in so so that they can amount to something for the mission or or they don't prolong their development, right? right. Like you could put off something. I think, oh, I'll get to that later. Well, you know, that mm-hmm. those are years that God's given you. Don't make sure you don't waste them, you know. Right. Spiritual development goes on hold for four years so I can develop as an right. architect or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And by the way, trades are, are good too. Not everyone's gonna go to college. Grenfell went into a trade. He mm-hmm. learned to become a mechanic. Right. Um, you take a famous name in missions like Jim Elliott, and you know, he needed a, a he needed a pilot to do what he did, and he mm-hmm. needed a a, a an airplane mechanic. And, you know, there were a lot of just trades trained people that he needed as part of his life. Right. There's a place to fit in. Absolutely. And then a bit of foreshadowing, we'll come back to this later in Grenfell's talk, but this is going to play out actually later in his life as well. So God knew what he was doing, even if Grenfell didn't. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, he was an average guy, but in terms of, you you mentioned kind of the, the great awakening is where we were coming mm-hmm. in. And actually, yes, uh, when, when Grenfell talks about his own spiritual life, he writes this, he writes, my earliest religious impressions of a serious kind date back to the early 60s, 1860s, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Get, our, get our years right. Yeah. When the great wave of awakening uh, that followed the revival of 59 was passing over the country, my interest in Africa began even earlier, being aroused by the pictures of Livingston's first book and deepened when I thought about um, uh, deepening what I thought about 10 years of age by the reading of the book itself. So for Grenfell, uh, when he was 10, he came up in an, at least with exposure to Christians and a Christian family and, and heard of David Livingston's work, uh, yeah. another fairly famous pioneering missionary into Africa. Yeah, maybe we could talk about him at some point. But Liv- Livingston, There's, in some regards, he was a pioneer, mm-hmm. but he was, he was a Jeremiah-type character. Mm-hmm. I mean, to read that biography is not necessarily encouraging. Right. It's, it's a tough story. He yeah. went through a lot and it didn't, things didn't go the way he imagined that they would yeah. necessarily. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Here's a 10-year-old who gets Livingston's book and, and, is, and is tuned in to the images that he's seeing before he's even tuned into the story. Right. And once he can read, he reads the story at 10 and essentially gives his heart to missions as a 10-year-old. And actually, he wasn't even saved at the time. He was a religious kid growing up in, around uh, a religious family mm-hmm. and in a church. But as, as he says, he, he actually gets saved after the, 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 what he calls kind of the revival of 59. Wow. Uh, so that would have put him you know, uh, into his late teens, mm. and that 15, 16. Wow. So, yeah. So, it, you know, again, uh, to parents as well, you want to expose your kids to, to missionaries, to missionary biographies. Because that's mm-hmm. a question that comes up. Why? Well, why should we read this, right? Why why read missionary biographies? Um, well, because I want my kids to hear about what other people are doing for the Lord too, and and myself. I want to be exposed to right just to what God is doing in the hearts of other people. So yeah, yeah. no, it's there's there's a lot there's a lot to say about that, which is actually the same reason why we're doing these episodes mm-hmm. is because exposure to people who are doing what God's called them to do is, is only ever just edifying, right? Like mm-hmm. for a believer, that's only just powerful. Um, we need, we need testimony. Yeah. And, uh, I think, I think the early new Testament believers, I mean, Paul knew the power of his own testimony. And so testimony holds a lot of weight in it and it is encouraging and powerful to hear stories of, of people of faith. Mm-hmm. When, when I read personally, when I read a missionary biography, I just, 
come away with this impression that uh, you have most oftentimes very, very average people who God gets a hold of. And then those people say, well, God is worth this much in my life. Mm-hmm. And then they just go out and give everything. Yeah. And then God moves and does extraordinary things through average people. And, you know, back to Grenfell, it was even said that he was of average height, which I like, uh, or below average height. Yeah. Which I am too. I'm yeah. short. Like he was a short dude. Yeah. Like he was so average that he was just like, uh, you would see him and probably like Paul, he's like, mm, I don't think much of this guy when you see him mm-hmm. uh, in person. But then they said he had uh, the determination of a lion um, and, you know, in the heart of, uh, he was compassionate as, uh, as a, as a, as they would say a mother or a nurse. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. So he, he, here he is, he's exposed to missions. He comes to Christ in his teens. Um, but he's, you know, working it and pr- apprenticing as a mechanic. Mm-hmm. How do things change? Where, where do things begin to change in his life as far as that goes? Yeah. So he gets exposed to a missionary again, uh, in his late teenage years, a missionary comes back who had been in Africa and brings another, um, report of what's going on. And it, it kind of revives that, that, that initial seed that was planted in him mm-hmm. at, at the age of 10. And so he decides that he's going to get equipped. He's, he goes to Bible college. And uh, Bible College at Bristol is where he attended. And then he started attending uh, Hennigy Street Church. They had a 7 a.m. prayer service to start their day on Sunday. They had seven services throughout the day on Sunday. In between services, they did track distribution and evangelism. So mm-hmm. that, this is a normal Sunday when, for these guys during the Great Awakening. And as he's getting equipped, like it kind of makes me feel lazy. Uh, wow. about, about what we're doing. 7 a.m. Yeah. prayer service, seven services, evangelism and track distribution in between. They finished that day. At uh, Monday morning at 6.30, he would get up for a Greek Bible study. Hmm. So, you know, that was just kind of the life and the routine that these guys kept. It was just, I need to get equipped, so whatever whatever it takes. And if it's 6.30 before I have to go in to, to uh, either to Bible college or into his work still as a, yeah. as a mechanic, it's, like, it's worth it. I'm going to do it. He was building disciplines bent around the word of God and sharing the gospel, mm-hmm. which is what we all need. Yeah. 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 And so his heart is, is set towards missions. He begins as well while he's in Bible college. He, he publishes a paper called Mission Work. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward title. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said the objective of it was to set before the readers proofs from all quarters of the globe that the gospel is, as of old, the power of God unto salvation. Mm. So, you know, he takes Romans 1.16 and, and looks back and sees what had happened historically. And his point, like a, and like a lot of the missionaries at this time, they're, they're challenging the church to say, look, God hasn't changed. And the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation, even if we're talking about, you know, India or Africa or wherever else right. in the world. And so he was, he's trying to, to stir people towards missions, even mm-hmm. before he's fully on the field himself. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So he, yeah, so Grenfell is challenging other people to the mission and then he himself. So he, he gets on the mission field just shortly after that. He actually goes to Cameroon first. Mm. So he spends two years in Cameroon with an experienced missionary uh, who was on the field there. In the middle of that, of his time in the Cameroon, he actually comes back to England to get married. And uh, he marries uh, a young lady, and then she joins him on the mission field in the Cameroon. So here he is. Um, by this point, he's into his early 20s, 24, 25, when okay. he gets married. He'd yeah. been on, on the field for a year. And, and then this is where things really kind of start getting real. 
for Grenfell. Um, one month and one day before his one year anniversary, his wife dies in childbirth. The child dies as well. Terrible. Yeah. On, on African soil, you know, so he loses his wife, he loses his child. Uh, and he goes into this, this, just this season of great, um, loneliness and mourning. Uh, he spends, you know, some time on the field there in Africa, but then ultimately ends up coming off the field. Uh, as he as he works through this uh, mm. and processes this, he was he was with the the Baptist mission at the time, and he ends up leaving the Baptist mission as well. So, you know, I think that's a a, a good reminder. You you start reading missionary biographies, and you hear about some really hard things, yeah. the level of commitment, or, or or what God asked, or or maybe what just happened in their life, and and then oftentimes you just hear how they just kind of keep going, as if there were they were superheroes or, or not human at all. Right. Right. But when you consider the the reality of losing your wife that you've just had for, for just under a year and, and being so filled with joy and anticipation over the birth of your first son, and then that child to die as well. And any human would mourn and grieve. Right. Right. This would be a normal thing. And I think that's an important part of looking at these missionary biographies as well, is that you just see that they really are normal people. Like he began to to, to really... He needed to take some time. He needed to grieve. He needed to struggle through a lot of things. And he goes back to England. He ends up spending a few years uh, back in England, mm-hmm. kind of back with a with a church and back with a body. Especially at that time, you know, missionary work was such a pioneering, lonely endeavor as it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the only person you had, oftentimes, was your was your family. And especially in Africa, it, there wasn't at this time frame. There wasn't probably a lot of missions teams. Um, the way there were in in parts of Asia, right? I mean, at this point in time, Asia was kind of it, it had there was movement, uh, and there were there were bodies of missions teams that were pouring in to to China. Africa was a little bit different field. It was more hostile. It was it was rough. It was rough. So to be there would probably be particularly isolating. Yeah. Well, it was at that time the dark continent, mm-hmm. you know, as I referred to it, because you know from a spiritual sense that as far as people knew that generally there was no light of Christ in that continent. There were no missionaries. Right. And they really didn't even know exactly how big it was, exactly how many people there were. They had, they had no idea uh, that you could have this, this, you know, this giant land mass that they knew was there mm-hmm. and to have no idea what's on the interior of it and, yeah. and how many you know, souls were there and that they were all lost. So. And it's, you know, I think it's really interesting too that <clears throat> during this time frame, even the even the great missionaries, I mean, even Hudson Taylor mm-hmm. lost almost every one of his immediate family members. Mm-hmm. I think what he had one surviving son mm-hmm. of his five or six children. I can't remember off the top of my head. Maybe you know, but but um, he lost everyone. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think we often think, well, I mean, look at how he remained on the field. Uh, he took his respite too. Like there were times that he had to get away, he had to get back, get his health back in order, and then he'd come back to the mission field. Uh, though he spent the majority of his life mm-hmm. in China, um, even the giants uh, need time to just sit with the Lord and, and mourn. You know, yeah. And it, the, a healing has to take place in order to get to a place of resolve. Like if you're ever going to get back out there, you've got to make sure all the baggage has been laid at the at the feet of the Lord. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you look at David. And uh, in, in scripture, King David, mm-hmm. he, he loses a son mm-hmm. um, because of his own wickedness. I mean, he lost many sons, but speaking of 
his son, his first son born to Bathsheba. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on one hand, if you, if you just skim through the story, you see that as soon as his son dies, he jumps up, he washes himself, you know, he eats and you go, that's, that's, you know, that's crazy. And you kind of get this idea that maybe the missionary should function like that. Right. You'll get someone like William Carey, who, you know, spent, what, you know, like 49 years on on the continent of Af uh, of India, mm -hmm. uh, not a continent, on, in India, the, country, the yeah. subcontinent yeah. at that time, uh, without a break, never right. takes a furlough, right? And and really takes his family against their will, his wife kicking and screaming, and, and that's a whole other story too. But right. you go, well, well, yeah, I mean, David jumps up, but we forget that David had already been through, and he, and he points this out to his to his, his you know, the people around him, he'd already been through the grieving process. He'd been mourning the loss of this child for a long time. Right. He'd already been crying out to God for the kid's life. And he'd already come to a place of, of, of resolve that, that no matter what God decides to do, I can still move forward with the Lord. So mm -hmm. he still, he himself worked through that. Right. He worked through it up to that point. He had had, you know, many months to, to process yeah, that. To and be to broken for the Lord. Yeah. When your wife suddenly gets sick and then in just a matter of, days or hours you lose this integral part of your life um there's there's nothing wrong with taking time mm -hmm. to sit before the lord and 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 to process and mm -hmm. you, those scars remain with you and in fact many times those scars are the catalyst for continuing mm -hmm. um for some they're the, they're the catalyst for quitting right you know and and you know that's between them and the lord but but at the end of the day for many men and and women the suffering that they go through and I think this is a part of every missionary bi biography. Mm -hmm. The suffering that they go to through is often the catalyst for continuing. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned Elizabeth Elliot in the intro, mm -hmm. for example, and yeah. she's a great example of that. Right. Her husband dies at the end of a spear. So suddenly it wasn't through sickness. It was just, you know, immediately mm -hmm. and at the hands of the people they're going to reach. And over time uh, she grieves and mourns and then of course comes back and even yep. back to those people. Yep. So. Yeah. Yeah. So George Grenfell is, um, you know, in the midst of his, his you know, loneliness, depression. Uh, and uh, so what, what happens? What transpires after, after that? So he gets back into England and, and he gets back with his church body and he gets encouraged and he, and he gets, um, you know, he gets to work through the grieving process, but he gets, you know, reminded um, both by the body and more importantly by the Lord that the Lord is still with him and that the work is still there. And as you mentioned, you know, these kind of things, whether we're a missionary or not, big events in our life can be a catalyst to push us towards or away from the Lord. And, uh, you know, it was like, he just decided that, well, if God's willing to lose a son, you know, if every other, you know, we look at, at the examples in scripture and, mm -hmm. and we have great men and women who lost far greater than even Grenfell did. Mm -hmm. uh, well, is God worth that? And again, it's just average people saying, what is God worth in my life? Yeah. And deciding to say, okay, well, I can lay in this bed forever and mourn, or I can get up and, and I'll carry the mourning with me. And, you know, it'll come at, and go at times, but the mission hasn't changed. So I need mm -hmm. to get up and push on. And so he did. So he got up, he, get, he gets re, you know, kind of re, retooled, refocused and, and um, heads back to Africa, this time with a vision for the Congo. Mm. And so this is actually where he spends most of his life. He's two years in the Cameroon, but he, he's gonna give the rest of his life to the Congo. Mm. And uh, so he goes with the vision of, of taking the Congo River 
all the way across Africa. So the Congo sits kind of in central, uh, right in central Africa, but it, it stretches over to the far western um, border. And, and there's a, you know, there's an outlet for the Congo River into okay. the ocean there. His vision was to start start there, take the Congo River, which travels east and, and north, then like a, a rainbow, it arcs up and then kind of comes back down. It comes almost all the way across the continent. Wow. His desire was to plant what they called mission stations in, the, in that era. That was the, the big word, mission stations all the way across the continent. Yeah. And so that's the vision that he took. He said, I'm, I'm going to go. And, and, and this was a, uh, a huge thing because it was completely uncharted territory. There were no maps of Africa. Nobody knew how far the Congo River went. Nobody knew exactly where it would go. And with all of its you know, tributaries, or, you know, it, it, was a, it was a huge vision. Wow. But, so that's, that's what he set out to do. So he, he goes to the Congo and uh, he also remarries. He, he actually, part of what he decided was that, um, no offense to, you know, to the listener, to the ones that may offend, but he's like, white women are just too frail to take to Africa <laughs> was one of the conclusions that he came to. So he remarries a, um, actually a, an Indian uh, uh, from the subcontinent of India. He, okay. he marries a dark-skinned woman okay. and he takes her with him and that's his, his new wife. And she actually outlives him. So I guess and it, the it that proves time, his point. That, that would probably be somewhat, somewhat controversial. Yeah. Even. yeah. Um, that would have been a, a, a serious decision. Mm-hmm. Right. But hey, he's already in Africa. He's probably, he's already a, a nut. He, yeah, yeah, he's, he's beyond caring what people think at yeah, that point. Right, I mean, yeah. if you're going to get in a canoe and try to, to, right. to brave the, the sure. Congo River. Well, good um, for him. So yeah, so he gets, you know, he, and he realized he needed a, a help meet and he mm -hmm. needed a companion. And I guess he found someone, as he would say, that was a little tougher. Yeah, praise God. And uh, took her with him. That's good. Yeah. So um, they're ministering. Mm -hmm. He's got this huge vision. Mm -hmm. um, how do how do things begin to to move forward? I mean, is he successful? Is he does he build the relationships he needs to build? And are these outposts these these fledgling church plants? How, I mean, how does it go? Yeah. So he quickly realizes that he needs a steamboat. This is going to be <laughs> yeah, the, obviously the key tool. Lots for his of ministry. missionaries just come up with it. I, I'm going to need a steamboat. Yeah, I think that points to the era. Right. <laughs> Yeah, steamboats yeah, aren't. I, I don't think I've ever been on a steamboat, personally. No, um, on my travels. I, I've I've been on one of these fake steamboats that they have down in Branson. That's not like they're not oh, like yeah. real steamboats, right? That's about that's the closest I've gotten. Okay, so he needs a steamboat for what? This isn't like a, a Kenneth Copeland. I need an airplane type thing, right? I need I need a private right. private steamboat. Yeah, uh, with servants. What no. was he going to use it for? Well, because the Congo River is the second, and and you know, and for various reasons, it's the second largest river in the world. So it's the second longest river in Africa. Mm -hmm. But then, in terms of its uh, the water output at its mouth, it's also the second kind of largest in terms of flow. Uh, I don't remember the number, but it puts out something like forty million. I don't know cubic feet per minute wow. or something. So it's not something that you can approach. It's big. It's hard to traverse. Without a motor. Yeah. Right. So he's going to take advantage of the technology of his time, which, you know, all wise missionaries do, whatever yeah. time you're in, you just take advantage of that. And this is a, the steam engine was invented about a hundred years prior. So steamboats are kind of coming into their, their 
their peak mm-hmm. at this time. So here's what happens. Actually, in May of 1877, Robert Arthington, so another name that nobody has ever heard of in terms of Christian missions and, and impacting the world, he, he dedicated his life and his fortune to Christ. Mm. He comes from an extremely wealthy family. He decides that he should live in poverty so that he can give all of his money to supporting missions and wow. missionaries. Uh, he, he wore the same coat for 17 years because he refused to buy a new one. He refused to use even candles because he, get, he thought the expense of a candle was another farthing that he could give to the, to the support wow. of missions. So, you, you know, again, I don't budget like that personally. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm challenged just by hearing the, the link to which some people would say God is worth this much. Mm-hmm. But what he does is he is that he offers a thousand pounds for the construction of a steamer in 1877. And he goes to the missionary societies and he says, I'll give a thousand pounds to have a steamer built for the purpose of reaching the Congo. So he was very specific. So God laid and this he had, on his heart as well. So, so this is happening uh, independent of Grenfell, right? So they, they don't, they, do they know each other? Have they, com- have they conversed? Has let, have letters been sent back and forth? Or is this, this, this is just a, a conviction that they both share? No, this is completely independent. Wow. So they, these two have not met, these two have not spoken. And this is actually two years before Grenfell is going to make the request to get yeah. a steamer. So here's God, the providence of God is, you know, as Alan Shelby says, God's providence has eyes, Yeah, right? And it can see what is going to, the need is going to be. So he puts this, this desire on a rich man's heart mm. and he takes it and, and, and Arthington presents this before the missionary societies and they're all like, uh, okay. You know, they don't do anything with it because they don't know, there's nobody who has that, that vision. There's no one capable of going and, and taking a steamer up the Congo. So, you know, money is just sitting there on the table. It's been guaranteed. If you'll build a boat to put on the Congo, I'll, I'll, I'll pay for it all. So yeah, so this is God's, God's working and independently and just two different hearts and two different lives. So Grenfell gets to the Congo. He spends uh, about a year there and realizes this isn't going anywhere without a steamer. So he goes back to England and he makes his plea. He says, somebody build me a boat. I'm gonna mm-hmm. take it to the Congo. And then they're like, oh yeah, well, we got this money sitting here, so let's build a boat. And that's wow. what they do. So they build a boat and they, they test it out there in, in the rivers in England. And then they break the boat down after it's been fully constructed, tested, they know it works. They break it down into 865 pound packages, crates, <laughs> so that they can then ship it from England down to Africa. And then wow. it takes a it takes a thousand men to haul those crates up. You know they have to hike them through the jungle. Those crates plus all the the food and supplies. They have to hike it through the jungle to uh, a pool to a to a place where the water is calm in the river, so that they can there reassemble the boat. And and that's where one of their their stations had been set up. That's what he spent his first year doing is, is finding that spot. The commitment, yeah, to something like that is incredible. Right. I mean, I think it would be really easy just to say, well, you know, I thought I needed it, but that, yeah, I'm second guessing. Right. Uh, But man, what an incredible work. And then it goes back to, I think you were alluding this to to this earlier, because God's providence has eyes, this man was trained as a mechanic in preparation for this moment. Okay. So here's where it gets interesting too. Okay. So the engineer who builds the boat, he's a, a young Christian as well. He, he, he's, you know, a qualified uh, mechanical engineer. 
He designs and builds the boat. He comes back to Africa with Grenfell. So it's his job to reassemble the boat. That's his mission. And then they're going to send him back to England. Mm -hmm. That's it. He's on the ground in Africa for uh, just a, a week or two and he dies. Oh my he gosh. gets sick and dies. So Grenfell calls up, I mean, writes up, you know, England. Yeah. He's like, I need a new, um, I need a new engineer. And so they send two more. They both die before they get to do any of the work. So, so three engineers have died trying to come and to put this boat together. And so Grenfell is like, well, what do we do? And he starts building it himself. Yeah. So in his own words, he says that the, the boat was prayed together. Because he wasn't actually qualified at that level. He wasn't a, an engineer. Sure. But his mechanics background, again, the, as you said, the providence of God, all the way back when he was 15, here he is now, that many years later, mm -hmm. needing to assemble a boat. Well, at least he's got, uh, you know, he knows his way around the tools and, and, and the ideas. And so right. he puts the whole boat together. He says it was prayed together. It functions. And then he, he's able to use that to take off and head north and east up the Congo. Wow. Incredible story. So yeah. how was the mission from there? I mean, how did it grow? How did God use it? So with that boat and with his willingness to go, now 25 million souls are able to hear the gospel that had, that had been completely out of reach before. 25 mm -hmm. million you know, opportunities have opened up with that Is he boat. just preaching up and down the river? You're just yeah. jumping off and meeting a village? And I mean, how is it working? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Occasionally, it worked like that. Most often, it, it would work like he would get close to a village and the arrows would start flying and all, all of the natives would get in their canoes and come out and start attacking his boat with, with spears, uh, poison yeah, I mean, tip spears all, and arrows. A steamboat in Africa mm -hmm. to these tribesmen is like uh, Ezekiel's wheel. Right. You know, coming down from heaven. That's how right. foreign yeah. this thing must look. I mean, I'm sure that they were shocked by it. Mm -hmm. So it's not no surprise that some of them were hostile, I suppose. Yeah. So, you know, he had to surround the, the deck of the boat with essentially a chicken wire uh, so that the, the arrows couldn't come through. Um, but um, he said his greatest defense was the, was the horn. Mm. So they would just blow the horn, and the giant people. air horn, and it would scare them, scare them away. Um, so they didn't actually have to engage in, in battle. But it, so everywhere he went, for the most part, he's, he's being attacked. He's being um, met with hostile resistance and, and he's, you know, through all of that, he's undeterred. He continues to take the gospel into the darkness, um, build relationships over time. And, and he's able to start winning people to the Lord in all of these places. Uh, as, and that's his goal is he's just going to continue going across the continent, lead on uh, a tribe or a tribe's member to the Lord, establish a, a, a base there and, and keep pressing, uh, eastward. And then he would, as Paul did, he would come back around at times and revisit and encourage to the believers there. So, so he's, you know, by the time, you know, he come, his life comes to an end, what are the things that the George, George Grenfell was used by God to accomplish? And, um, you know, how did he see the work? What was his perspective on the work? And then what's the, what's our, in retrospect, what's our perspective looking back on a man like George Grenfell? What's our perspective on someone like yeah. that? So, not only was he attacked, you know, all, all along the way, when you look at the, the, the culture, the religious state of the people, obviously they were lost. But beyond that, Grenfell writes about uh, they, were, they were cannibals. You would go to the tribes and, and mm. they, they would eat each other. They would capture people from other tribes. They were, 
They would, they were slavers, you know, they would take slaves from other tribes. They were uh, into witchcraft. It was very, uh, very animistic, very spiritualistic, uh, you know, so there was a, a, you know, a lot of oppression right? that was continually there. And they had a practice that whenever someone of importance died, uh, so, so let's say you're an important person in, in, in the tribe, you die, the living wives, all of them would be thrown alive into the grave and would be buried oh my gosh. Uh, with that man so that they could go with him into the afterlife. Uh, the slaves that, that that man had would be killed and, and would be laid out in a path from wherever he died to wherever he would be buried as, as an announcement that my, my master has died and I'm kind of leading him into the afterlife. You know, so when somebody died, it, it required the murder of a dozen other people just to bury this guy. It was said that uh, in one area that the population went from, uh, from around 20,000 down to around 4,000 in just a couple of years because of these practices. Oh my gosh. So he's looking at this, he's looking at the continent and this was part of why it was called the dark continent at that time. Not only was it, you know, they didn't have the light of Christ, but they were just living in complete, you know, darkness mm -hmm. in terms of how they treated you know, other, the, the tribes around them. Um, and so he looks at that and that's uh, overwhelming. That's a, a big task, except, except for the gospel, there's no hope, except God move, there's no hope. Um, and he sees, like we said, he sees, uh, you know, victory and breakthrough in a lot of different areas. Mm -hmm. But as he gets to the end of his life, he, he never makes it all the way across to Africa. Um, he opens the door, as we said, to 25 million people, but he doesn't, he doesn't accomplish he his doesn't stated get, goal. Yeah, okay. And for that purpose, he looks back at his life at the end of his life and he says, man, I don't know. There's, you know, I don't, I don't think I accomplished anything. And he, and he, he takes a, a personal look at his life like I could have done more. Uh, or I could have sacrificed more. Or I could have, you know, pushed the boat farther. You know, on and on and on is you know it's like the end of Schindler's List type of thing where you just you get to the end of life and he's looking at all of his decisions and all the the resources that were left on the table, mm -hmm. going, well, what if we would have done more, right? So that's tough. That's tough for him. Yeah, and I think you know there's wisdom in it. Mm -hmm. uh, as maybe even before the end of our life. You know, self-evaluation, reflection, what am I doing with the resources that God has given me to steward mm -hmm. is a wise thing. Yeah. Uh, what can I cut out? How can I be more effective for the kingdom? But in reality, if we were to say, well, how did God view George Grenfell's life as he gets to the end of it? Uh, well, he was obedient. Uh, he was uh, faithful continually in the midst of continual hardships. Uh, Grenfell writes that you know, the, the weight of continually being attacked, continually being physically persecuted, the spiritual attack, you know, later in his life, um, Belgium, uh, who has sovereign power there at that time, they come in and they, they, they take his ship from him and they start using it in, oh in a war for the purposes of war to, of to dominate the people. Uh, you know, so that is very discouraging to him. He goes and makes a plea and actually ends up getting his ship back. Mm. Um, you know, so there's a lot of things that, that discouraged him, but when God looks, he sees a man who is obedient to the call that he was given, right? A man who is willing to take the gospel and in the face of, you know, uh, great odds say, I'm going to continue. Was his life perfect? Well, no. Could he have done more? Probably. Um, but he, but he went and was obedient to the call of the Lord. And he was faithful. Yeah. And I think that's such uh, a powerful characteristic, faithfulness, mm -hmm. because our God is a faithful God. And because truly there are, you know, 
we're quick to give up. I mean, we're, I don't know. We, we said it at the very beginning, we're, we're, we're different people now. Mm-hmm. And I think as, as, you know, if we're gonna kind of broad brush society and Christianity, we're, we're soft, we're quick yeah. to quit. Yeah. And this guy wasn't. Yeah, and, and I, there is still more pioneering work to do in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we've got, we, there's a lot of misnomers concerning mi- missions work. Mm-hmm. One of those is what still needs to be done you know, assessing what really needs to be done in the world. Mm-hmm. Christians need to really consider what, what, what does it mean to, to do more, more pioneering work? But, but also, what does it look like to be a successful missionary? Mm-hmm. What does success look like? And I think George Grenfell's life um, illustrates both of those things for us. What do you think we need to learn or take away from that? Yeah, I think we've lost track of what success is. So in modern missions, we look at numbers uh, primarily. So we value... Uh, big reports that say, "Hey, we we you know ten thousand, wow, yeah, you know whatever converts or Flashy people showed stories. up at my yeah. event." And we value numbers over obedience. Uh, if we got a heart of obedience uh, and just said, "You know what? I'm going to continue to follow the Lord no matter how many people respond," mm-hmm. um, then praise the Lord. I think we value visibility in modern missions as well. We're talking about people that were almost invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned three. Um, engineers who went into the Congo and gave their life. Who are they? We don't even know their names. They're not even, they're not even written down. And, and so some of us would say, well, what a wasted life. Well, no, this man built the boat that opened the door to 25 million souls, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we value visibility. We want, you know, our media presence to be huge. And, and I don't think God- The photo shoots. Cares. Of the missions trips. Right. You know, all those types About of that. And I think, you know, in modern missions, we value social justice uh, over the gospel. I think social justice alone has taken a higher precedence. And I'm mm-hmm. not saying, you know, if you have the opportunity, then dig a well, give somebody access to water. Yeah. But if you're not giving the water of life, then then what's the value? Yeah, I don't even think we know what the word, so, the, the, the phrase- social justice means. Yeah. Because what justice is there in feeding a person uh, or liberating them from their government uh, if their soul is damned to hell for eternity? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's, these, are, these are really tough questions that the church has to, we have to continue to confront because this is the tide. You know, this is the way that things are going right before us. And, and we as believers have to, have to really think hard about these things. Yeah. Yeah, let, let me, as we're wrapping up, I'll give you Isaiah 29, 14. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people. Here's God's declaration. Even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Mm. And I think this is a, a, a verse, a mindset that we have to keep in terms of you know, missions and even our, our, our local ministries is that God wants to do a work and God wants to do a wonder. And most of the time, it will confuse the wise men and the strategist and the plans. And God will take the weak and the foolish things of mm-hmm. the world out of the mouths of babes and sucklings. He'll, he'll bring forth his word to people who are just simply willing to say, okay, well, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, absolutely. James, this is great. I'm really looking forward to, to talking about more and more missionaries with you and, and, um, conversing about some of these guys that don't get talked about. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so as we go, um, George Grenfell is, you read about him in a biography mm-hmm. 
um, that actually refers to him as a giant. I have it right here. Okay. So here, yeah. So Giants in the Missionary Trail, there's uh, short biographies of various different guys, Adoniram Judson and William Carey, some of the big names are in there. A guy like uh, Jonathan Goforth, what mm-hmm. a good name if you're going to be a missionary. No doubt. Goforth. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so he is actually, even though many of us don't know him, he's in a book called Giants of the Missionary Trail. Yeah. And so there's, there, you know, that's, this is us advocating for, mm-hmm. for reading more about yeah. these men, even if you are, God's called you to be a supporter mm-hmm. at, in your local church, or he's called you to, of course, missions work in your own community. Mm-hmm. Um, you are a missionary right where you're at. Uh, these, are, these are people that we've got to learn about because they, they inspire us to live faithful and uh, outrageous lives. Right. You know? And to that point, the backside, if you're not a missionary who's going, then you're still called to support missions. So we have a Missions One course in LFBI that, um, depending on when you air this, either yeah, will no, be starting soon no, or, this, or has started. I'm hoping this episode will have come out in advance of that. Yeah, so, so but, the Missions One course is, is going to be talking a lot about support for those who don't go and, and those who do. How do we prepare our own support network or how do we support effectively those who do go? Mm-hmm. So everyone is called to be involved. Yeah, and we're expanding the missions program overall here at, at LFBI which is, I think is worth noting again, is that we have our introduction to missions class, which is 16 weeks, mm-hmm. but we're offering a series of eight weeks courses, missions one, two, and three, uh, that, uh, the, that people will be seeing in the rotation of classes that are gonna address all different kinds of aspects of missions. And, and we wanna encourage people to be a part of those classes and learn yeah. more. Amen. So, James, thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, appreciate you. Always enjoy having you on the show. And we wanna thank you as well, the listener, for joining us for another episode of The Postscript. Uh, we do want these uh, episodes to be inspiring, powerful in your life and and build faith, uh, turn your attention back to God's word and, and to consider what it says and who he is. But also we want to invite you to be a part of LFBI. And so if you visit lfbi.org, you can see our program of study. There are classes that cover uh, you know a range of, of topics, uh, biblical studies, so you can get a, gra- uh, a grasp of what God's word says. You can learn how to divide it and understand it for yourself but then also more topical things such as uh, church planting and and learning how to be a part of missions. And so check out that course load and uh, we wanna invite you to come hang out with us in class. With that, we love you, we're grateful for you and we pray that God would continue to extend your own missions influence in your community and all over the world. God bless and we'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.